I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Mariella Meets. I'm Mariella Frostrup, and each week I'll be bringing you a selection of the best interviews from our favorite guests. Movers and shakers from the worlds of art and entertainment, politics, business, music, and wider society. To discuss everything from their latest endeavors to career highlights and early beginnings. Intimate, in-depth talk with pioneering talents and fascinating folk. Discussing the stuff that matters to them and how they scaled the slippery slopes of success. Stockard Channing is a multi-Emmy and Tony Award-winning actor, best known for playing Rizzo in the film Grease and First Lady Abby Bartlett, who could forget her in The West Wing. She's currently on stage at Hampstead Theatre in North London in Night Mother, a tense two-hander that takes place over the course of a single evening between a daughter, Jessie, played by Rebecca Knight, and Thelma, her mother, played by Stockard. The Pulitzer Prize-winning play, written by Marsha Norman, had its UK premiere at the Hampstead Theatre in 1985. Uh, when I met her earlier, I started off by asking what drew her to the part. Well, it was sent to me, and um, like everybody else, I'd been locked down for two years. I have actually was in London for all that time. And uh, I, I think uh, it was a combination of many things. First of all, the play is brilliant, but as you saw, it's a bit of a challenge to handle for an hour and 17 minutes. Um, but I thought, well, jump in, just because you've got to rejoin the universe. And I'm not alone in that. I think we all did. So I think it was the challenge of it, but also the quality of it. Um, and I was really happy that it worked out as well as it did. But I was very nervous, I'll be frank, about doing it because it's um, a, a big thing, big part on every level, emotionally, etc. So anyway, um, it all turned out well, and I got through my ordeal of fire, and uh, here I, here we are. And in terms of, of the character you play, describe her for me and and, and tell me w- what you wanted to explore in her character. Well, it's very important that this play was written in 1980, and at a time you know before cell phones, Wi-Fis, internet, all of that stuff. And these two women are living in rural America. It's not specified where. I, I would think sort of Midwest, Western Midwest kind of thing. And um, the, the daughter has epilepsy, uh, which in those days in the early 20th centuries was considered um, a great shame. It was actually people were put in asylums, mental asylums for a while. So the mother, um, who is uh, married young, has no education, 
and um, took the daughter in after uh, a sort of divorce from this um, unhappy liaison with this guy. But it, they're very simple, uneducated, rural people that live probably in a very small town um, in the middle of nowhere. So that kind of compression and isolation is a major factor. And they both have had, as it emerges, unhappy uh, marriages. And um, But the mother is somebody who has sort of overcomes it cons- consciously by saying, I mean, there's a line that she says, you know, how would I know anything living out here? You Things happen and you do what you can about them. And she's very much that kind of realist and kind of has a zest for life, whereas the daughter is depressed and has come to the point in her life that she just, even though the, she's over the epilepsy to a degree, um, is feeling better and decides she's going to just take an action. And so they have come from very opposite ends of the spectrum and attitudes towards life, even though both of them have a very, very small spectrum they're operating off of. We talked about, um, you know, the daunting factors in taking it on in the first place, the yeah. things that, that might have put you off. But what about actually playing this part every night and going through the trauma of of trying to persuade your daughter not to take her own life, which is, is just such a you know, the, the most emotionally wrenching thing that, that anyone could, could possibly go through. I mean, how does that take it out of you in terms of, of wear and tear on a nightly basis? <laughs> well, it does to a degree. But the other thing is the daughter is not a young, young, young woman. She's probably specified late 30s, that sort of thing. And they have lived, not only has she raised her daughter, who had epilepsy since she was five, but she kept the secret from her. So it's a lot about unfolding of secrets. And the daughter's decided she wants to know secrets of the family. And, of course, the mother, when she woke up that morning, has absolutely no idea this is how her day is going to go, whereas the daughter's been planning this thing, and it doesn't go great for either of them. But in the course of not only is she confronting the misery that her daughter seems to be going through, but also is confronting the issues of her own past, her relationship with her late husband, all of that. And it's like kicking over a bit of a rock about her own loneliness, her own challenges in life. So that's as much of the arc as anything else. And then they ironically get to know each other better and better in the course of this long conversation. It's, it's, it's there's some irony in that. And part, and part of me thinks it's a bit of a love story because they do uh, connect at some point later on. If you would agree, I don't know. You watched it. Like yeah, no, no. Like I it. mean, I, I'm still, I'm still traumatized because I think when you watch anything like that as a parent, you end up placing your relationship with your child yeah. at the heart of it, and that makes it even more unbearable, perhaps, yeah. in a way. So I really struggle with my daughter's 17 years old, and 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 just to imagine being a parent in that situation and having to have that conversation and, and, and realizing the futility of everything you said in the face of, of her determination mm-hmm. w- w- was just really, really painful. I, I know you haven't had children. I wondered what the play told you or illuminated you on in terms of the, the sort of mother-child relationship because one of the lines that really struck me was, I'm what your child became. Yeah. It's that yeah. sense of futility that you can't do and you know, that they are their their own person. Yeah, I think that's true. Of all of us, we've all had, <laughs> excuse me, expectations ourselves, and other people have expectations of us when we were children, and I think that's part of their sort of bonding to the end because they both have had fairly miserable existences as it emerges. But um, and also the the mother 
has relied on the daughter to sort of run her life. That's sort of the quid pro quo that has grown up over the 10-odd, you know, 11 years that they've been living together as adults, as two adults. But in addition, she raised her, and with the knowledge that this daughter was, you know, her child was extremely fragile in many ways. And um, it's sort of belied by a kind of banter at the beginning, you know, that you think the mother's a bit tough or a bit demanding. But underneath it, she's just been on the key vive for her, you know, most, I mean, at least 38 years of her life. It, it felt like a very contemporary play. I was really quite struck when I read that it was written yeah. in the 1980s by, yeah. by Martin Norman, um, you know, very before its time in terms of dealing even with epilepsy at that yeah. time, but, but certainly with mental health issues. And it, 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 but it, it, it also felt like great writing does that it's so connected with, with now. And, you know, there's a huge mental health epidemic amongst younger people. Yeah. Um, was was that something that struck you, the, the, the nature of, of the contemporary nature of it? Well, yes. I mean, I think it's a, unfortunately what we all go through to varying degrees. And, you know, it's not a lot easily fixed either. But definitely then, um, especially given the mother's age, she's probably born in the 20s. She was, that was, she carried with her this sense of shame and responsibility that it, in the name of protection of the daughter, you know, not telling things. And I think that happens in families, too, where we don't, what we're not told, what we find out about our parents' lives and what we like as children, expectations. And that is universal, and this goes on anyway. And some people, it turns out perfectly happily, they can cope, and others can't. And that's, you know, at least we live now where there are attempts to help people cope. But I think back then, especially, it's very important how rural the situation, their living situation is. Very, very narrow frequency. You, you're in your 70s yeah. and your career has spanned many decades. Do you still find it incredibly important? Is it is it still essential to you to kind of take on things that really challenge you? Because some people <laughs> might imagine that you might like to sit back and, and I don't know, flick through your old work and go, how marvellous <laughs> I was, rather no. than what am I doing tomorrow? No, I'm, I'm very much about what am I doing tomorrow. I never, I like looking back. Is that an absolute, I don't like looking back? No, it's true. And I know this why I'm always curious what's going to happen next. And as I said earlier, this is one of the reasons I'm here and why I did it. I think that continually looking forward is what keeps me sort of yeah. sane and yeah. and upright and breathing yeah. in many ways. Do you think it's maudlin to look back? No, I wouldn't make a judgment about it. It's just what keeps me going. And I'm sure there's a bad side to that as well. But um, No, no, chop, chop, move on. <laughs> I guess it's just my nature. I don't know. But because this coincides, I mean, taking on a project like this, which is very, very demanding, also coincides, uh, you know, in a way, I mean, a couple of years, Grace, uh, with you moving to London, which which you did just in time for the pandemic, mm, basically. Yes. So you managed to move to London and, and, and get locked down. Uh-huh. Um, but you are still here. Yeah. So that's another quite dramatic change to make, uh, you know, as a septuagenarian. Yeah. Well, I don't think of myself as a septuagenarian, but that's... I guess I am. Um, I don't know. It's sort of, it's a bit like what the mother says. Things happen and you you do what you can about them. And you see what happens next. So I guess I share that view with her. Um, I haven't, you know, burned all my bridges. I still am an American citizen and this, that and the other. But um, I just sort of put one step in front of the other. And when, when as I said, you know, we, I merged from Locke. I said, this is an opportunity to see where you're at. And hopefully you can do a good job at it and, and sort of reawake all those things that make you do what you do. So that was a big step. What prompted you to, to come to London? Why did you decide to come to London? And then how was it 
being in isolation in a strange city. Well, it wasn't really a strange city because of the nature of my father's business. I, I traveled around the world since I was about five. And I've worked here and lived here on and off for many years. And um, when I did, a, I did a play here a few years ago called Apologia. And I literally was living now in the same flat that I lived in then. So I was originally coming in December 2019. Yes, right. And um, I was going to leave in May. And um, things happen <laughs> you know, to all of us. And I didn't really want to go back. I had my big dog with me. and It's not exactly portable. And I said, all right, just keep going. And it was it was uh, stressful because I really didn't know if I could could stay. I mean, seriously, you know, all that business and where I'd be living and all of that. But it, it all worked out. And so I rode the waves with the rest of us, you know, the rest of the world. Really. And I never felt homesick. I felt um, very much at home here. But of course, I, like everybody else, I mean, I live, I am living in the in the West End. And to see that completely empty out and walk those completely empty streets in Soho is really stunning and brought it all home. But, you know, and the other thing is I think your energy sort of goes down to like lizard-like level. And, you know, I was every day at five o'clock, watch the news, da, 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 you know, and so when it started to open up, I said, come on, come on, you have to improvise now. You have to sort of talk to yourself to move off the dime. And I think I shared that with Everybody. I love the idea of you go to a sort of lizard-like yes. pace. It, Reptilian. It, yeah, you, your, blood, your heart slows down, <laughs> the blood slows down. You think, I'll just sit here yeah. for another... You know. Then you get sort of used to it. Yeah, yeah. But, but is there something also energising about doing something so radically different with your life? Yeah, I didn't do it sort of consciously. It happened sort of slowly. But I definitely, that's it. It's another chapter of my life. So we'll see what happens next. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Let's start at the beginning. Well, not at the beginning, really, but actually Stockard isn't your real name, as it were. It's not your first name, it's my is maiden it? name. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's what you created yourself as when, when you became yeah. an actress. But, yeah. but becoming an actress wasn't your original ambition. You went to Harvard in the, yeah, in the 1960s. And what, 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 what tempted you away from What were you studying and what tempted you away from it? Well, I got married very young, too, um, for the first time. Um, and... Uh, we were way too young to get married, but you know, given my age, people sort of had to get married so they could be together and all that sort of stuff. And I was, be honest, uh, kind of going to be a well-educated wife and mother. That was, but I got uh, lured into doing theatre when I was at Harvard, and 
And then my marriage broke up because we were, as I said, babies. And we later said we kind of gave birth to each other's life <laughs> because we, we both came from these rather staid backgrounds and went on to do uh, individually interesting things with our lives. But, um, yeah, and I just, I guess I sort of got bitten by this bug uh, of doing it, not with the sorts of doing it professionally even at all, but... Um, one thing led to another, and then suddenly I ran off and joined the circus, as I was. How did that go down with your family? Not I very think... well. Not very well at all. What, what were their ambitions for you? Um, to be a well-educated wife and mother. You know, not unlike the woman in this play. You know, I wanted you to have a husband, That you know, given that generation I came from. And then also when I was a young woman, that's when everything hit the fan. I mean, it was the 60s, it was the 70s, and, you know, you sort of rode that wave. Not everybody, but I did, so there you go. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because you were a student at Harvard in the 1960s. It must have been the most incredibly exciting time to be yeah. to be young. Yeah, and also in terms of um, theater, there was a, a lot of us that happened to be there at the same time that went on to you know great things, and so there was this sort of cross pollination going on, which probably you know really um, um, led gave me the the guts, if you will, to go out and try to do it professionally because I'd had so much experience in an amateur sort of level, but there was a lot of support because of um, the sort of endeavors of these theater groups that were going on in Cambridge and Boston at the time. Who were your contemporaries then at the time? Well, there would be my beloved Johnny Lithgow and um, Tommy Lee Jones and Jimmy Woods, and there was also a bunch of people, like mainly Doug Kenny, who started the National Lampoon, which went on to Saturday Night Live, la la la, and Frank Rich was the drama editor of the the uh, lamb was the crimson at the time. I mean, it was just one of those. It happens often at universities that this sort of fecund time where people sort of get together and and go on to to be doing what they they weren't really there to do to begin with. <laughs> Nothing to do with academia. And did you know what sort of actress you want wanted to be? Did you have a role model, or had you just found something that that you really enjoyed immersing yourself in? No, I didn't really. I uh, was lucky enough to sort of run away and kind of camp out in a bedstead in uh, or, or then Earl's Court, which, you know, was whatever, and see some theater at the time on my own before uh, I had to go back. This is a sort of student thing that was wonderful, and I saw Maggie Smith in black comedy. I saw her in, Desdemo you know, playing Desdemona, much to do about nothing, this, that, and the other. I mean, all this, and I was very much admiring not only of her, but of her whole, the, the life of an actor here, because it was without the love of those trimmings of the junk that I didn't, never was very comfortable with, it turned out later. But I, at the time, I never dreamed I would be a professional. And uh, then when I did become one and had varying degrees of, became occasionally famous, you know, I thought back of that because it was, all seemed very simple. I think that's kind of a, maybe naive, but it was certainly the way I wanted to live my life and ultimately my career. The first time uh, I think you became occasionally famous yeah. was um, your Hollywood break, really, I suppose, uh, starring alongside Jack Nicholson and Warren Beatty in, in Mike Nichols' uh, comedy The Fortune in 1975. Yeah. Yeah. The film wasn't actually a success, although it seemed no. like a big break at the time. Oh, um, yes. What did that teach you? It taught me that a very hard lesson about how you know, all these expectations can be dashed, etc. And I actually did three films in a row, none of which panned out. And then it was a rather dry season, shall we say. And so that was the big lesson you learned. That the old phrase, today's news wraps tomorrow's fish. So, you know, be very realistic about uh, this, this part of that world. 
But it's a valuable lesson as well, isn't it? The, yeah, like, yeah. like constantly famous or, you know, increasingly famous for the whole of your life. Those things, I think, are probably quite quite harmful in a way. Whereas dipping in and out and understanding how fleeting it can be gives you a much better perspective, I imagine. Yes, it gives me a great perspective, but it's still always a hard lesson because you don't know if you're in the up or the down. But one of the things when things are down, you say, oh, good, I don't have to be in the red carpet again. <laughs> I hate, I was never very good. I always dressed wrong. And this, that, the other. I just, um, this is not my forte. That sounds like you're quite hard on yourself because I'm sure <laughs> other people didn't think you dressed wrong. Well, when you have photographs taken, you see them. I said, what was I thinking wearing that? You know, but that's hardly, that's hardly the, you know, the organizing principle of my life. Let's put it that way. Is that one of the hard things about being an actress? And, and maybe increasingly so, because we live in such a sort of constant barrage of visualization, as yeah. they like to call well, it. Well, especially now. I really, that wasn't the case when I was younger or starting out. But now, my goodness. Do you think you would have had the guts for it I now? don't think so. It's just, you know, as I said, all I, you know, basically, I just want to act. It's, that's what I found I was good at and had an affinity for and, you know, luckily got to do it. So do you look at, younger actresses now and, and feel some degree of, I don't know, pity for them that, that they have to do all of these other things as well. I mean, I, I used to interview authors a lot. I mean, I still interview authors quite a bit, but, but you know, they, they went from being able to sit in their studies and write novels and then come out and, and tell you great thoughts and then disappear again to having to sort of perform on, on Twitter and do Insta Lives and, you know, suddenly yeah. become something completely other to the profession of writing. Well, there's performing and then there's acting. I mean, <clears throat> and I, I have a bit of the performer in me, but basically I was always looking at a text and seeing what the character was and uh, that. That was the big allure for me, and it still is. This constant sort of self-regard is something that's very alien to me, and maybe I got into acting because I wanted to sort of get out of myself to a degree, and I find that or find another aspect of myself that I can mine and, and make sense through a text to other people watching me act. That's sort of it. But um, uh, the, the trappings of it I've never been very good at or comfortable with, and so um, I do one, you know, there's such an enormous flood of publicity for people, and some of them are very, very young. And you wonder what's going to happen in the next five years, 10 years, whatever, because there's such an enormous amount of, there's even an enormous amount of product. I mean, during the lockdown, I mean, we all watch so much, we binging on everything like that. And now I find, wait a minute, I have a list in arms long of things I want to watch because there's so much stuff out there. So, you know, it, it's, um, it could be quite whimsical, a lot of it. You appeared to all of us very young when you appeared in, in, in Greece, but actually <laughs> you were in your 30s, yes. which is such an incongruous thing. Why, um, why, why did that happen? How did you end up with that part? Well, the um, producer of it, Alan Carr, was my manager very briefly. And he, he and I were on the phone and he said how he was having trouble casting this part. And as we were talking, there was something, this big silence and I said, are you there? And he said, can you c come in for a meeting on Monday? I said, well, sure, what? And I met Randall and Pat Birch, and, um, <clears throat> who was a director and choreographer, and then the next thing I know I had the part. And because I had sung in, um, in The Fortune, I actually sang in the thing, and I sang the, the credits, under the credits or something, they knew I could carry a tune. I don't know how on earth. I didn't audition or anything. And also, I had done a film for Jerry Schatzberg, my second film, 
uh, which was called Sweet Revenge, and I played a car thief in it, you know, street kid. So they kind of, I guess from that, they knew I had that side of me as well. And did you realize when you were making it that you were in something, I dare say the answer is no, but that, that, that you were in something that was going to become so culturally important and su- such a huge project, you know? No, I knew that it was really, really well cared for. It was Paramount, really loved it. I was, and the other thing was, while we were rehearsing it, I was in a, a, a Neil Simon movie called Cheap Detective with Peter Falk that was on the other side of the hills. I would have to go from Warner Brothers to Paramount, back and forth, playing you know two different parts. But then by the time we started shooting, it was a long shoot. It was They spent a lot of money on it. It was the best cinematographer ever, the best, highest quality, you know, very high quality stuff. I mean, it's a great-looking film. Mm, still. But when it came out, it was dismissed and rather envied because it made a lot of money, and people dismissed it as a kid's movie because in those days they wanted, you know, it was a very snob thing for... You wanted to be, you know, Visconti, Bertolucci, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, but it, and then because of technology, uh, you know, VCRs and now everything else, it lived and lived. But I do think it, I had no idea it would have such a cultural resonance today because I'm stopped by a lot of young women who related to this character and, and th- thought of her as, you know, they they really saw themselves in her as an underdog or not an underdog, sexually liberated, all of that. And I said, well, who knew? How great. <laughs> yeah, it's so interesting. So my, my daughter absolutely loves uh, yeah. the, the, the film and, and also your part in it. Uh, recently, uh, one <clears throat> of your co-stars, uh, uh, Olivia Newton-John, was forced to defend the film against allegations of it being sexist. And I, I wonder, how, you know, having had such a long career and, and played so many different parts, whether you worry about the sort of revisionist nature of society and judgment now, you know, judging a film that was made then with the sort of the moral morality of today well it was made then but also it was about a time before that so it was made at a time say the early 60s something like that well it's not a bad thing to remind people that that kind of prejudice lives within us and um i think you know sometimes the wheel has gone a little too far in another direction i think we have to remind ourselves that our basic human nature is not always spotless And, uh, you know, I think you can't always paint things with such a broad brush. Um, But I think more than just an opinion, I think that's very important to know we are all, I mean, anybody who was in fascism uh, was just a human being like we are and that we all have it inside us to get a little too extreme in our opinions. So I'm, you know, I'm so surprised to hear that about this rather innocent little movie. So, you know, I think we have have to remind us of that is what... That's what the life was like, because I lived through it. Do you think people also take entertainment a, a bit too seriously at times? <laughs> I mean, I know that, that when you were playing the president's wife in the West Wing, people would ask you whether it gave you an insight into what it must be like for, you know, Jackie O or yeah. Hillary, Jill, Hillary, yeah, Hillary yes. or, or Jill Biden and, and, and so on. I know it was it was interesting. Uh, you know, Martin Sheen absolutely loved it. We'd get we had to fly to Washington to do exteriors, and and people on the plane. Would go, oh, and they thought he was like the president, <laughs> all that. You know, and it was lovely because it was a sort of halcyon time. But it's curious also if you watch West Wing, we bridged two very different administrations, Clinton and Bush. You know, the second Bush, and it was kind of fascinating to go. And I think that's one of the reasons people do watch it a lot. And they said, oh. You know, but we weren't the president. We weren't. The first, I wasn't the first lady. 
You know, but um, I, it is a wonderful, wonderful program. But I think sometimes people long for that. People have tried uh, in the past to draw you out uh, on your politics. I wondered why you resist, and also in terms of the future of mankind, whether forgetting party allegiances and whatever, you're, you're optimistic about our future? Or how, how, how do you feel right now? Actually, realistic. You're talking to someone who literally puts all her, the newspapers into a bag and goes down to the corner and dumps them in the green thing that says recycling. Let's just start there. That's, so I'm a bit of a crank about that stuff. But I think it's important for people to, uh, to go back to a whole 70s thing of their awareness, to their consciousness to be lifted. And I think that is especially important about the environment. And whether my dumping my plastic and my papers into the, the corner bin does any good, I don't know. But I think it's important to get in the habit of mind and if nothing else, maybe people can get in the habit of mind of doing their bit and on the most grassroots level because um, I'm, I'm terrified along with everybody else of what's going to happen. I'm not going to be around when it gets bad. But I think it's really about education and getting into people's thinking of what they can do on an individual basis and not think it's somebody else who has to take care of it. Do you think that's the biggest thing that's changed since the 1970s, that fundamental idea then of, uh, you know, individual action? And nowadays it feels very much like, like there's a lot of finger pointing that goes on, yeah. but it means that nobody ever has to really do anything. I agree. And I think that's danger. You sort of, you know, ride the, you know, the baloney pony of, you know, just press and opinions and, and all the rest of it. And, you, and in fact, we should, you know, see what we can do in our daily life and tell that to our children. And I'm sure now our children would be telling it, if I had children, be telling it to Granny, which would be me. But Granny's already convinced. But, I mean, it's that younger generation that has to step up and put a lot of pressure on the people that are in office now. Just finally, did Night Mother make you wish you'd had children or thank heavens that you never had? <laughs> I don't know. A bit of both, I suppose. Uh, it's a, I must be an, an immense, terrifying responsibility. And... You know, and also, you know, as it gets later on to play, the guilt the mother has of what she did wrong and all of that. And I'm sure that people who have children deal with that on a daily basis. Because, I mean, I remember my own mother saying, you were such a sweet child when you were three. (laughs) And that must be universal. Thanks for listening to Mariella Meets with me, Mariella Frostrup. There'll be more from the podcast next week, so make sure to download the free Times Radio app to never miss an episode. And don't forget, you can catch the live edition of my program every Monday to Thursday, 1 till 4 on Times Radio. Catch you next time. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.